Section 51 of Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. Inquiry Concerning Political Justice and Its Influence on Morals and Happiness, Volume 2, by William Godwin. Book 8, Chapter 8. Objection to this system from the inflexibility of its restrictions. Objection stated. Natural and moral independence distinguished. Tendency of restriction properly so called. The system of equality, not a system of restriction. An objection that has often been urged against a system of equality is that it is inconsistent with personal independence. Every man, according to this scheme, is a passive instrument in the hands of the community. He must eat and drink and play and sleep at the bidding of others. He has no habitation, no period at which he can retreat into himself and not ask another's leave. He has nothing that he can call his own, not even his time or his person. Under the appearance of a perfect freedom from oppression and tyranny, he is in reality subjected to the most unlimited slavery. To understand the force of this objection, it is necessary that we should distinguish two sorts of independence, one of which may be denominated natural, and the other moral. Natural independence, a freedom from all constraint, except that of reasons and inducements presented to the understanding, is of the utmost importance to the welfare and improvement of mind. Moral independence, on the contrary, is always injurious. The dependence, which is essential, in this respect, to the wholesome temperament of society, includes in its articles, that are, no doubt, unpalatable to a multitude of the present race of mankind, but that owe their unpopularity only to weakness and vice. It includes a censure to be exercised by every individual over the actions of another, a promptness to inquire into and to judge them. Why should we shrink from this? What could be more beneficial than for each man to derive assistance for correcting and molding his conduct from the perspicacity of his neighbors? The reason that this species of censure is at present exercised with illiberality is because it is exercised clandestinely and because we submit to its operation with impatience and aversion. Moral independence is always injurious, for, as has abundantly appeared in the course of the present inquiry, there is no situation in which I can be placed, where it is not incumbent upon me to adopt a certain conduct in preference to all others, and, of consequence, where I shall not prove an ill member of society, if I act in any other than a particular manner. The attachment that is felt by the present race of mankind to independence in this respect, and the desire to act as they please, without being accountable to the principles of reason, are highly detrimental to the general welfare. But, if we ought never to act independently of the principles of reason, and, in no instance, to shrink from the candid examination of another, it is nevertheless essential that we should, at all times, be free to cultivate the individuality and follow the dictates of our own judgment. If there be anything in the idea of equality that infringes this principle, the objection ought probably to be conclusive. If the scheme be, as it has often been represented, a scheme of government, constraint, and regulation, it is, no doubt, in direct hostility with the principles of this work. But the truth is, that a system of equality requires no restrictions or superintendents. There is no need of common labor, meals, or magazines. These are feeble and mistaken instruments for restraining the conduct without making conquest of the judgment. If you cannot bring over the hearts of the community to your party, expect no success from brute regulations. 
If you can, regulation is unnecessary. Such a system was well enough adapted to the military constitution of Sparta, but it is wholly unworthy of men enlisted in no cause but that of reason and justice. Beware of reducing men to the state of machines. Govern them through no medium but that of inclination and conviction. Can there be a good reason for men's eating together, except where they are prompted to it by the impulse of their own minds? Ought I to come at a certain hour from the museum where I am working, the retreat in which I meditate, or the observatory where I remark the phenomena of nature, to a certain hall appropriated to the office of eating, instead of eating, as reason bids me, at the time and place most suited to my avocations? Why have common magazines? For the purpose of carrying our provisions to a certain distance, that we may afterwards bring them back again. Or is this precaution really necessary, after all that has been said, to guard us against the knavery and covetousness of our associates? Appendix Of Cooperation, Cohabitation, and Marriage Advantages of Social Refinement Of Individuality Evils of Cooperation Ideas of the future state of cooperation, its limits, its legitimate province, evils of cohabitation, of the received system of marriage, consequences of their abolition, a promiscuous commerce of the sexes estimated, inconstancy estimated, education need not be a subject of positive institution, of the division of labor. It is a curious subject to inquire into the due medium between individuality and concert. On the one hand, it is to be observed that human beings are formed for society. Without society, we shall probably be deprived of the most eminent enjoyments of which our nature is susceptible. In society, no man, possessing the genuine marks of a man, can stand alone. Our opinions, our tempers, and our habits are modified by those of each other. This is by no means the mere operation of arguments and persuasives. It occurs in that insensible and gradual way which no resolution can enable us wholly to counteract. He that would attempt to counteract it by insulating himself will fall into a worse error than that which he seeks to avoid. He will divest himself of the character of a man and be incapable of judging of his fellow men or of reasoning upon human affairs. On the other hand, individuality is of the very essence of intellectual excellence. He that resigns himself wholly to sympathy and imitation can possess little of mental strength or accuracy. The system of his life is a species of sensual dereliction. He is like a captive in the garden of Armida. He may revel in the midst of a thousand delights, but he is incapable of the enterprise of a hero or the severity of a philosopher. He lives forgetting and forgot. He has deserted his station in human society. Mankind cannot be benefited by him. He neither animates them to exertion nor leads them forward to unexpected improvement. When his country or his species call for him, he is not found in his rank. They can owe him no obligations, and, if one spark of a generous spirit remain within him, he will view his proceedings with no complacency. The truly venerable and the truly happy must have the fortitude to maintain his individuality. If he indulge in the gratifications and cultivate the feelings of man, he must at the same time be strenuous in following the train of his disquisitions and exercising the powers of his understanding. The objectors of a former chapter, footnote, chapter 5, end footnote, were partly in the right when they spoke of the endless variety of mind. It would be absurd to say that we are not capable of truth, of evidence, and agreement. In these respects, so far as mind is in a state of progressive improvement, 
we are perpetually coming nearer to each other. But there are subjects about which we shall continually differ, and ought to differ. The ideas, associations, and circumstances of each man are properly his own, and it is a pernicious system that would lead us to require all men, however different their circumstances, to act by a precise general rule. Add to this that, by the doctrine of progressive improvement, we shall always be erroneous, though we shall every day become less erroneous. The proper method for hastening the decline of error and producing uniformity of judgment is not by brute force, by laws, or by imitation, but on the contrary, by exciting every man to think for himself. From these principles, it appears that everything that is usually understood by the term cooperation is, in some degree, an evil. A man in solitude is obliged to sacrifice or postpone the execution of his best thoughts in compliance with his necessities or his frailties. How many admirable designs have perished in the conception by means of this circumstance? It is still worse when a man is also obliged to consult the convenience of others. If I be expected to eat or to work in conjunction with my neighbor, it must either be at a time most convenient to me, or to him, or to neither of us. We cannot be reduced to a clockwork uniformity. Hence it follows that all supererogatory cooperation is carefully to be avoided, common labor and common meals. But what shall we say to a cooperation that seems dictated by the nature of the work to be performed? It ought to be diminished. There is probably considerably more of injury in the concert of industry than of sympathies. At present, it is unreasonable to doubt that the consideration of the evil of cooperation is, in certain urgent cases, to be postponed to that urgency. Whether, by the nature of things, cooperation of some sort will always be necessary is a question we are scarcely competent to decide. At present, to pull down a tree, to cut a canal, to navigate a vessel, require the labor of many. Will they always require the labor of many? When we recollect the complicated machines of human contrivance, various sorts of mills, of weaving engines, steam engines, are we not astonished at the compendium of labor they produce? Who shall say where this species of improvement must stop? At present, such inventions alarm the laboring part of the community and they may be productive of temporary distress, though they conduce in the sequel to the most important interests of the multitude. But, in a state of equal labor, their utility will be liable to no dispute. Hereafter it is by no means clear that the most extensive operations will not be within the reach of one man, or, to make use of a familiar instance, that a plow may not be turned into a field, and perform its office without the need of superintendence. It was in this sense that the celebrated Franklin conjectured that mind would one day become omnipotent over matter. Footnote. I have no authority to quote for this expression, but the conversation of Dr. Price. I am happy to find, upon inquiry, that Mr. William Morgan, the nephew of Dr. Price, an editor of his works, distinctly recollects to have heard it from his uncle. End footnote. The conclusion of the progress which has here been sketched is something like a final close to the necessity of manual labor. It may be instructive in such cases to observe how the sublime geniuses of former times anticipated what seems likely to be the future improvement of mankind. It was one of the laws of Lycurgus that no Spartan should be employed in manual labor. For this purpose, under his system, it was necessary that they should be plentifully supplied with slaves devoted to drudgery. Matter, or, to speak more accurately, the certain and unintermitting laws of the universe will be the helots of the period we are contemplating. We shall end in this respect, O immortal legislator, 
at the point from which you began. To return to the subject of cooperation, it may be a curious speculation to attend to the progressive steps by which this feature of human society may be expected to decline. For example, shall we have concerts of music? The miserable state of mechanism of the majority of the performers is so conspicuous as to be even at this day a topic of mortification and ridicule. Will it not be practicable hereafter for one man to perform the whole? Shall we have theatrical exhibitions? This seems to include an absurd and vicious cooperation. It may be doubted whether men will hereafter come forward in any mode, formally to repeat words and ideas that are not their own. It may be doubted whether any musical performer will habitually execute the compositions of others. We yield supinely to the superior merit of our predecessors, because we are accustomed to indulge the inactivity of our faculties. All formal repetition of other men's ideas seems to be a scheme for imprisoning, for so long a time, the operations of our own mind. It borders, perhaps in this respect, upon a breach of sincerity, which requires that we should give immediate utterance to every useful and valuable idea that occurs. Having ventured to state these hints and conjectures, let us endeavor to mark the limits of individuality. Every man that receives an impression from any external object has the current of his own thoughts modified by force, and yet, without external impressions, we should be nothing. Every man that reads the composition of another suffers the succession of his ideas to be, in a considerable degree, under the direction of his author. But it does not seem as if this would ever form a sufficient objection against reading. One man will always have stored up reflections and facts that another wants, and mature and digested discourse will perhaps always, in equal circumstances, be superior to that which is extempore. Conversation is a species of cooperation, one or the other party always yielding to have his ideas guided by the other. Yet conversation, and the intercourse of mind with mind, seem to be the most fertile sources of improvement. It is here as it is with punishment. He that, in the gentlest manner, undertakes to reason another out of his vices, will probably occasion pain. But this species of punishment ought, upon no account, to be superseded. Let not these views of the future individuality of man be misapprehended or overstrained. We ought to be able to do without one another. He is the most perfect man, to whom society is not a necessary of life, but a luxury, innocent and enviable, in which he joyfully indulges. Such a man will not fly to society, as to something requisite for the consuming of his time, or the refuge of his weakness. In society he will find pleasure. The temper of his mind will prepare him for friendship and for love, but he will resort with a scarcely inferior eagerness to solitude and will find in it the highest complacence and the purest delight. Another article which belongs to the subject of cooperation is cohabitation. The evils attendant on this practice are obvious. In order to the human understanding's being successfully cultivated, it is necessary that the intellectual operations of men should be independent of each other. Footnote, Volume 1, Book 4, Chapter 3, Page 137. End footnote. We should avoid such practices as are calculated to melt our opinions into a common mold. Cohabitation is also hostile to that fortitude which should accustom a man, in his actions as well as in his opinions, to judge for himself and feel competent to the discharge of his own duties. Add to this that it is absurd to expect the inclinations and wishes of two human beings to coincide through any long period of time. To oblige them to act and to live together, 
is to subject them to some inevitable portion of thwarting, bickering, and unhappiness. This cannot be otherwise, so long as men shall continue to vary in their habits, their preferences, and their views. No man is always cheerful and kind, and it is better that his fits of irritation should subside of themselves, since the mischief in that case is more limited, and since the jarring of opposite tempers, and the suggestions of a wounded pride, tend inexpressibly to increase the irritation. When I seek to correct the defects of a stranger, it is with urbanity and good humor. I have no idea of convincing him through the medium of surliness and invective. But something of this kind inevitably obtains, where the intercourse is too unremitted. The subject of cohabitation is particularly interesting, as it includes in it the subject of marriage. It will therefore be proper to pursue the inquiry in greater detail. The evil of marriage, as it is practiced in European countries, extends further than we have yet described. The method is, for a thoughtless and romantic youth of each sex, to come together, to see each other, for a few times, and under circumstances full of delusion, and then to vow eternal attachment. What is the consequence of this? In almost every instance they find themselves deceived. They are reduced to make the best of an irretrievable mistake. They are led to conceive it their wisest policy to shut their eyes upon realities, happy if, by any perversion of intellect, they can persuade themselves that they were right in their first crude opinion of each other. Thus the institution of marriage is made a system of fraud, and men who carefully mislead their judgments in the daily affair of their life must be expected to have a crippled judgment in every other concern. Add to this that marriage, as now understood, is a monopoly, and the worst of monopolies. So long as two human beings are forbidden, by positive institution, to follow the dictates of their own mind, prejudice will be alive and vigorous. So long as I seek, by despotic and artificial means, to maintain my possession of a woman, I am guilty of the most odious selfishness. Over this imaginary prize men watch with perpetual jealousy, and one man finds his desire and his capacity to circumvent as much excited as the other is excited to traverse his projects and frustrate his hopes. As long as this state of society continues, philanthropy will be crossed and checked in a thousand ways, and the still augmenting stream of abuse will continue to flow. The abolition of the present system of marriage appears to involve no evils. We are apt to represent that abolition to ourselves as the harbinger of brutal lust and depravity. But it really happens in this, as in other cases, that the positive laws which are made to restrain our vices irritate and multiply them. Not to say that the same sentiments of justice and happiness, which, in a state of equality, would destroy our relish for expensive gratifications, might be expected to decrease our inordinate appetites of every kind, and to lead us universally to prefer the pleasures of intellect to the pleasures of sense. It is a question of some moment whether the intercourse of the sexes, in a reasonable state of society, would be promiscuous, or whether each man would select for himself a partner, to whom he will adhere as long as that adherence shall continue to be the choice of both parties. Probability seems to be greatly in favor of the latter, Perhaps this side of the alternative is most favorable to population. Perhaps it would suggest itself in preference to the man who would wish to maintain the several propensities of his frame, in the order due to their relative importance, and to prevent a merely sensual appetite from engrossing excessive attention. It is scarcely to be imagined that this commerce, in any state of society, will be stripped of its adjuncts, and that men will as willingly hold it with a woman whose personal and mental qualities they disapprove as with one of a different description. 
but it is the nature of the human mind to persist, for a certain length of time, in its opinion or choice. The parties, therefore, having acted upon selection, are not likely to forget this selection when the interview is over. Friendship, if by friendship we understand that affection for an individual which is measured singly by what we know of his worth, is one of the most exquisite gratifications, perhaps one of the most improving exercises of a rational mind. Friendship, therefore, may be expected to come in aid of the sexual intercourse, to refine its grossness and increase its delight. All these arguments are calculated to determine our judgment in favor of marriage as a salutary and respectable institution, but not of that species of marriage in which there is no room for repentance, and to which liberty and hope are equally strangers. Admitting these principles, therefore, as the basis of the sexual commerce, what opinion ought we form respecting infidelity to this attachment? Certainly no ties ought to be imposed upon either party, preventing them from quitting the attachment whenever their judgment directs them to quit it, with respect to such infidelities as are compatible with an intention to adhere to it, the point of principal importance is a determination to have recourse to no species of disguise. In ordinary cases, and where the periods of absence are of no long duration, it would seem that any inconstancy would reflect some portion of discredit on the person that practiced it. It would argue that the person's propensities were not under that kind of subordination, which virtue and self-government appear to prescribe. But inconstancy, like any other temporary dereliction, would not be found incompatible with a character of uncommon excellence. What, at present, renders it, in many instances, peculiarly loathsome, is its being practiced in a clandestine manner. It leads to a train of falsehood and a concerted hypocrisy, than which there is scarcely anything that more eminently deprives and degrades the human mind. The mutual kindness of persons of an opposite sex will, in such a state, fall under the same system as any other species of friendship. Exclusively of groundless and obstinate attachments, it will be impossible for me to live in the world without finding in one man a worth superior to that of another. To this man, I shall feel kindness, in exact proportion to my apprehension of his worth. The case will be the same with respect to the other sex. I shall assiduously cultivate the intercourse of that woman whose moral and intellectual accomplishments strike me in the most powerful manner. But, it may happen, that other men will feel for her the same preference that I do. This will create no difficulty. We may all enjoy her conversation. And, her choice being declared, we shall all be wise enough to consider the sexual commerce as unessential to our regard. It is a mark of the extreme depravity of our present habits, that we are inclined to suppose the sexual commerce necessary to the advantages arising from the purest friendship. It is by no means indispensable that the female to whom each man attaches himself in that matter should appear to each the most deserving and excellent of her sex. Let us consider the way in which this state of society will modify education. It may be imagined that the abolition of the present system of marriage would make education, in a certain sense, the affair of the public, Though, if there be any truth in the reasonings of this work, to provide for it by the positive institutions of a community, would be extremely inconsistent with the true principles of an intellectual nature. Footnote. Book 6. Chapter 8. End footnote. Education may be regarded as consisting of various branches. First, the personal cares which the helpless state of an infant requires. These will probably devolve upon the mother, unless, by frequent parturition, or by the nature of these cares, that be found to render her share 
of the burthen unequal, and then it will be amicably and willingly participated by others. Secondly, food and other necessary supplies. These will easily find their true level and spontaneously flow from the quarter in which they abound to the quarter that is deficient. Lastly, the term education may be used to signify instruction. The task of instruction under such a form of society will be greatly simplified and altered from what it is at present. It will then scarcely be thought more necessary to make boys slaves than to make men so. The business will not then be to bring forward so many adepts in the eggshell that the vanity of parents may be flattered by hearing their praises. No man will think of vexing with premature learning the feeble and inexperienced, lest, when they come to years of discretion, they should refuse to be learned. The mind will be suffered to expand itself, in proportion as occasion and impression shall excite it, and not tortured and enervated by being cast in a particular mold. No creature in human form will be expected to learn anything, but because he desires it, and has some conception of its value, and every man, in proportion to his capacity, will be ready to furnish such general hints and comprehensive views as will suffice for the guidance and encouragement of him who studies from the impulse of desire. These observations lead us to the consideration of one additional difficulty, which relates to the division of labor. Shall each man manufacture his tools, furniture, and accommodations? This would perhaps be a tedious operation. Every man performs the task to which he is accustomed, more skillfully, and in a shorter time than another. It is reasonable that you should make for me, that which perhaps I should be three or four times as long in making, and should make imperfectly at last. Shall we then introduce barter and exchange? By no means. The moment I require any further reason for supplying you than the cogency of your claim, the moment, in addition to the dictates of benevolence, I demand a prospect of reciprocal advantage to myself. There is an end of that political justice and pure society of which we treat. The division of labor, as it has been developed by commercial writers, is the offspring of avarice. It has been found that 10 persons can make 240 times as many pins in a day as one person. Footnote. Smith's Wealth of Nations, Book 1, Chapter 1. End footnote. This refinement is the growth of monopoly. The object is to see into how vast a surface the industry of the lower classes may be beaten, the more completely to gild over the indolent and the proud. The ingenuity of the merchant is wedded by new improvements of this sort to transport more of the wealth of the powerful into his coffers. The practicability of effecting a compendium of labor by this means will be greatly diminished when men shall learn to deny themselves partial superfluities. The utility of such a saving of labor, where labor shall be changed from a burthen into an amusement will scarcely balance the evils of so extensive a cooperation. From what has been said, it appears that there will be a division of labor. If we compare the society in question with the state of the solitaire and the savage, but it will produce an extensive simplification of labor if we compare it with that to which we are at present accustomed in civilized Europe. End of section 51. Recording by Arden.